Well, good morning, church. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ike Nicholson. I'm the senior pastor here, and uh, we want to especially welcome those of you who are visiting for the first time. Uh, I told the Christmas Eve uh, folks, uh, we had a lot of first-time folks come to Christmas Eve service, and I said, this is your first time at South Sub for Christmas Eve. It is for me and my family as well. And uh, it was a wonderful time to be with you as we celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ. We're actually still in the season of Christmas. I'll talk about that more in just a few moments. But before I do, I want to recognize a very special friend and colleague. Pastor Judy Bowles is in the house. Would you please stand up? Yes, please stand up. God bless you. She, uh, uh, it's amazing how God works. Uh, <clears throat> she uh, and I served together. Uh, outside. She's still there. When I was in Washington, D.C. and North Chevy Chase Christian Church back in about 2000, I think, somewhere in there, 2000 to 2004, uh, uh, Pastor Judy is the uh, uh, minister of worship, pastor of worship at Pilgrimage Christian Church, which is just around the Beltway, uh, not that many miles, about three or four hours drive. And um, <laughs> if, if, you, if you've been around the Beltway at D.C., L.A. and Atlanta are about the only two cities that have that beat. Um, I'm going to share something, and I know I'm cutting into my sermon time a little bit, uh, but it is a family service. I'm trying to be sure. She serves with uh, Pastor Brenda, and uh, North Chevy Chase Church, a church I served, uh, was uh, very encouraged by the ministry of Pilgrimage Christian Church. It was a new church start. Uh, it is a predominantly African-American congregation, serves in an area where there is great need and Pastor Judy and Pastor Brenda have been significant figures in that community, uh, working with young families, with uh, single mom families, with children. The, the ministry that they do is amazing. And every year, when and, and I'm a kind of a budget kind of guy. Those of you who've been working with me, I, the, my, my, you know, I, I'm just that way. And if you looked at Pilgrimage Christian Church on paper, you would say, this place ain't ever going to take off. It's bad. And uh, so many congregations really try to support pilgrimage. And the church I was serving decided to send a rather significant check. Uh, the church that I served was, was pretty well uh, blessed by God. And so we sent a fairly significant check. And I'm just a young punk kid preacher. I don't know anything. And, uh, uh, you know, I was pretty proud of myself that we had sent this huge check. And, and Pastor Brenda, she yanked a knot in my tail. Because I'm going to tell you what happened. About four, you can go home and tell Pastor Brenda this. About four or five weeks go by, and we, see, she's trying to talk over me. We did not get a thank you note. Uh-huh. You know where it's coming. No, no, it's my church. My church, my pulpit. You go get your own pulpit. And I got upset with Pastor Brenda. And I called her, and I said, well, Pastor Brenda, I said, we sent these big checks. You haven't sent us a thank you note. She said, honey, you didn't send it. God did. <laughs> she said, God just used you to bless pilgrimage. Does that sound like Pastor Brenda? Reverend Brenda? I was madder than fire. But the weeks and the months and the years went on, 
And to this day, and you can ask my wife, Shauna, to this day, that moment was significant in my spiritual development because I began to realize the greatest privilege we can have is not to be given laud and honor for doing good things for God, but being the vessels through which God does good things for his church. Thank you. God bless you. God bless Pilgrimage Christian Church, and God bless Reverend Brenda. So, with that, let's go ahead and have our benediction now. I ain't letting you off that easy. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like for you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. This is the other half of the Christmas story. Pastor Joe and uh, Ms. Debbie have shared with our young people. You're pro- you probably will get more out of their time than you will my time. Uh, but I do uh, want to share with you a little bit uh, uh, about Matthew chapter 2. This is oftentimes called the visitation of the Magi. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> now, I'm going to read from the King James Version. I've got it in the English Standard Version, but I'm going to read it from because you cannot read the Christmas stories in any other version but the King James Version. The Apostle Paul said that himself somewhere. <laughs> it's just beautiful. I mean, the, the, the two best books that have influenced the English uh, language is the uh, Book of Common Prayer put out by the, the Church of England and the King James Version of the Bible. I don't normally use that if you're visiting. I normally use the English Standard Version, uh, but you got to hear this story from the King James Version. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had departed the king, when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, They departed into their own country another way. May God add his blessing and his understanding to this, the reading of his holy and perfect word. Amen. So in a few days, January 6th, in about a week, that is Epiphany. It is the celebration of the arrival of the Magi on January 6th. You see, for Christians, Christmas is more than just a day. It is a season. It's actually a 12-day season, to be exact. 
you've heard of the 12 days of Christmas. And although many of us, many of you may have celebrated the 12 days, interestingly, with your family or your friends, certainly within our commercial world, the 12 days prior to Christmas, according to the church, the 12 days of Christmas begins December 25th and ends on January 5th and January 6th being uh, the day of Epiphany. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things in this story. That the Magi, the wise men, did not come to the manger, but they came to the house. And they didn't come to see a baby, but they came to see a child. Now, given that Herod, when he finds out that he's been tricked by the wise men, as they depart another way to their home country... He sends his soldiers to Bethlehem, an event which was remembered yesterday by the church throughout the world as the massacre of the innocents when Herod had every male child under the age of two put to death. It's safe to assume that the Magi had started their journey on the night Christ was born And they finally arrived to see the Holy Family two years later. Which is one of the reasons we celebrate Christmas about two weeks to commemorate the two-year journey of the Magi. As a matter of fact, Christmas is one of the shortest seasons in the Christian year. Now this story is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. This text is packed with parallels throughout the rest of the Bible. If you're reading the story of the Magi, and you you can't help but to remember the call of Abraham out of the city of Ur into the promised land, and Abram, Abraham's journey, not knowing where he's going, not knowing how long it's going to take to get there, but setting out following the will of God nonetheless. You can't help but remember the Hebrews as they're led out of Egypt by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day, not knowing where they're going, not knowing how long it's going to get there, but knowing that as long as they keep their eyes fixed on those signs of God's presence, the pillar of fire and the cloud, they won't be led astray. You see, it is a story that we read and celebrate Uh, about the faith of the Magi, the righteousness of the Magi, who bring these gifts of great value to the Christ child, which in turn is often preached about from pulpits like this, that we too should bring our greatest gift to the Christ child, our time, our talent, our treasure, ourselves. And although there's nothing wrong with all of that stuff, I'm not really sure if that is what the Bible is trying to teach us. Now, when I think about the Magi's journey, I picture these three men. This is just in my mind. don't have any biblical proof for it because the Bible doesn't say that there were three Magi. The Bible says there were three gifts. I picture these three Magi, though, alone in the desert, no servants, uh, no slaves, no wives. How do I know there's no wives? Because the Bible calls them wise men. And brothers in Christ, you know good and well, it is not a wise thing to haul your wife into the desert for two years not knowing where you're going and unwilling to ask for directions. 
That's not a slight against the women. It's just, it's just, it's just the nature of we men. So what can we safely assume from this passage? Well, last week, I shared with you several paintings, several drawings of the nativity, and a brief description of how early Christians understood Christ's birth and its significance. If you missed last week, I'm sorry. In addition to some of the early paintings of the Magi, we actually have a rather lengthy description and teaching of the importance of the Magi, the wise men, written by a guy named Origen. Now, Origen was an old preacher that lived between the year 184 and 253, and we have his writings. This is as close as we can get. There are a few folks that wrote prior to him, but this is pretty old writings. And it gives us a glimpse into how the early church understood these stories in the Bible and how important they were. Origen is the first guy who begins to unpack the, 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 the significance and importance of these three gifts. And he says that gold represents Christ's kingship, the myrrh, his humanity, and the frankincense, his divinity. You heard glimpses of that uh, when Pastor Joe and Miss Debbie were sharing with our young people today. And we're going to talk about these gifts a little bit more in just a bit. But one of the things that is so interesting is how much this story appears in the early paintings of the early church. Now last week I shared with you a depiction of the nativity that was found in the catacombs at Rome. Now these are uh, uh, underground graves that were discovered uh, about a hundred or so years ago that are under Rome that were essentially the cemetery of ancient Christians. This date, the, these catacombs date back certainly to about the 200s. And in some of these catacombs, there are over 45 different paintings of the Magi. And this one is one of the oldest. Like the Nativity, they, these paintings of the Magi are some of the most prominent paintings on ancient tombs and caskets. And one of the things I shared with you last week is, is when, we look, when we find these old tombs and these old caskets of early Christians, what we find on them are, are, are not crosses, not angels, uh, uh, not some of the things that you and I would see on modern-day tombstone or modern-day caskets, but by and large, we see depictions of the nativity, the birth of Jesus, and the visitation of the Magi. Not things you would normally think of to put on your, your tombstone or your casket. As a matter of fact, here is another significantly old uh, stone plate that would have been laid over top of a casket. The inscription on it is in Latin, and it says, In Severa, in God may you live. Now, Severa was the name of an ancient saint. A lot of scholars argue who she is, and there's some correlations to her. But nevertheless, she is a woman of faith. And on top of her casket is this slab with this uh, statement which becomes an ancient benediction of the church that we hear today. May you live in God. May you live in Christ. May you be in Christ. As a matter of fact, 
that phrase was significant in the, in the thinking of some of the reformers during the Protestant Reformation. There's another slab dating back to the 4th century, found again over a casket. Now, why would these be so prominent? Why is the story of the Magi so significant in the thinking of the early church about what it means to be in God or in Christ? Now, one suggestion is that in the Gospel of Matthew, and here's where it gets interesting for me, the Gospel of Matthew is the gospel that is written predominantly to Jewish believers. People, Christians who are ethnically Jewish who have become followers of Jesus Christ. Messianic Jews, you might even want to call them. This gospel that is written to Jews outside of Mary and Joseph, what's so unique about this is that the first folks who recognize who Jesus is and bring to him gifts that pertain to his office as king, as prophet, as priest, are Gentiles. These three men, or, or, or more, are folks who are not, Je- not Jews. So who are these magi? Who are these wise men? Well, the Bible says that they come from the east. Now, the obvious interpretation of where that is is the Parthian Empire, which is, at the time, the modern realization of the Persian Empire, which, if you've been here for any period of time, as we've looked in the Bible, comes up again and again and again in the Scriptures. One of the major three empires that seemed to plague the Jews throughout their entire existence, uh, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians. I find it profound that the Persians were so significant to the ancient Jews, especially as they were returned to Jerusalem after their captivity in in, in Babylon. And the Bible even refers to one of the Persian kings, King Cyrus, as a kind of Messiah, that the Persians time and time again see God and are a part of God's plan. Well, it's not until the... 500s or the 6th century that we begin to see the Persians, the Magi, actually dressed as Persians. This is the, the predominant way the Parthian people would have dressed. You can't really see it because it's too far, but this is also the first time we see the three Magi, the three wise men, named. That is, that they're given names. Balthazar, Melchior, and Gaspar. Now, like I said earlier, their number is never mentioned in Scripture. As a matter of fact, many of the ancient paintings of the visit of the Magi will have anywhere from two wise men up to 12 wise men. But they would eventually be depicted as representing the three ancient classifications of humanity. If you talk to some anthropologists today, they will still maintain these three predominant classifications that according to the Bible, trace back to the sons of, of Noah, the Europeans, the Asians, and the Africans. And these three magi come to reflect, come to represent these three uh, 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 different uh, groups of people. And, and one of the things that we see in this is, is that God is no respecter of persons. That they too, these three wise men, 
from across the human race are children of Abraham. Therefore, they're children of the promise that God would be their God as well and that they would be God's children. This begins to shed some light on why this scene was so prevalent in the tombs and on the caskets of the ancient Christians because it was for them a designation that the God of the Hebrews was also their God, that they had been adopted into the family of God, that we have been grafted in to the people of God. But where did the idea come from that the wise men were camel-riding kings? Well, dromedaries, really. Camels have two humps. Dromedaries have one. That's just some of my idiosyncrasies. Well, the idea of three kings and the presence of camels is actually linked with two Old Testament prophecies. If you're taking notes, write these down and go look at them later today. Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11 reads, May the kings of Tarshish... And the islands bring tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. May all kings bow before him. All nations serve him. And Isaiah chapter 60 is also read in the, uh, the celebration of the feast of the Epiphany. And like Psalm 72, Isaiah highlights a double meaning of the visit of the wise men. I've shared with you before that when we read the Bible, it's not unusual for the Bible to, to have multiple meanings at the same time. A meaning at the time it was written, and a meaning that points ultimately to the big story, the meta-narrative of the Bible, and that is, is the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. Let me just say to you, if you read the Bible and you look for yourself in the story, you're reading it wrong. When you read the Bible, you need to be looking for the story of Jesus. For example, when David goes up against Goliath, you will never ever hear me preach, you can be like David too. Jesus is the David who conquers the giants in your life. If you and I are anything, we're the soldiers of Saul hiding in a tent somewhere. Listen, here is a clue to your spiritual victory. Don't try to fight the battles against darkness by yourself. It's not you and I who are victorious. It is Jesus who is victorious. Step out of the way and let him fight the battle for you. That's what scripture is pointing to. And the same thing here. For when Isaiah proclaims this great prophecy, if you write this down, Isaiah chapter 60, beginning in uh, verse 11. No, verse 1. That's the problem. I need bifocals, but I hate bifocals. <laughs> Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has dawned upon you. Nations shall walk by your light, kings by the radiance of your dawning. Raise your eyes and look about. They all gather and come to you. Not to you and me, but to God. And God revealed through Jesus Christ. Your sons and daughters from afar. Then you shall see and be radiant. How shall we see? Through Christ. How will we be radiant? Through Christ. For the riches of the sea shall be poured out before you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. Who's the you? Jesus. Caravans of camels shall cover you. Dromedaries. See, I knew I'd get dromedaries. It's Bible. 
dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all from Sheba shall come bearing gold and frankincense and heralding the praises of the Lord. What is so stark about this whole scene is not whether or not there are three magi or more. It's not where they came from, whether it's Persia or Arabia or Sheba or Petra, but what they brought. The gift themselves. Pastor Joe and Debbie have already talked with us about their significance. I've already shared with you what Origen said about these gifts. But let's take just a moment and look at the use of each gift. First of all, gold. Now, gold mainly came from Ethiopia, which is just south of Egypt. It was the universally accepted monetary currency of the day. But it was a currency that was so valuable, it was typically reserved solely for kings. Not surprising. We're good with that, right? But next is frankincense. Now, frankincense is a resin that was used for several purposes. Some considered it medicinal. As a matter of fact, there have been some studies today that have shown that frankincense might be able to alleviate the symptoms of arthritis. So if some of you are suffering from that, go out and get yourself some frankincense. It might help you a little bit. Sometimes they would mix it with wine. I wonder if the wine was more medicinal <laughs> than the frankincense, but that's another sermon. It was an incense that was used predominantly in worship. It was mixed with the burnt offerings, but it was most commonly used as a spice to rub onto those who had died so that the body, the smell of the body, would be kept to a minimum until the body could be buried. Myrrh also was used in offerings, also used in preparation for burial, but was more commonly mixed with wine or vinegar and used as a painkiller. As a matter of fact, when we read about the crucifixion of Christ, Christ is given gall, which is this bitter wine mixed with myrrh. Now let me get this straight for you in case you've missed it. Imagine for a moment you're Mary. These presumably three wise men from a far-off country who have spent two years traveling to see your only son just brought your toddler gifts of gold and balming fluid and painkillers. No wonder the Bible says Mary pondered all these things in her heart. She must have thought these three guys were crazy. And yet, all three of these gifts teach us about who Jesus is and his mission. His gift to us. You see, because in these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, we see that it was not these three items that were the actual gifts, but they were the foreshadowing of the greatest gift. Our king, our priest, our sacrifice for the redemption of the world. The greatest gift 
The greatest gift is not gold or frankincense and myrrh. The greatest gift is not the faith of these wise men. The greatest gift is the gift of that baby who will grow up and take away your sin and my sin and join us again to the Father. Epiphany. The church defines it as the day that the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles was revealed through the Magi. Webster's Dictionary defines Epiphany as the aha moment, where one is suddenly struck with a life-changing realization which changes the rest of the story. Both are true today. The first we have declared to you from Scripture and through the church's tradition that Jesus is our King our priest, and our spotless lamb. And the second, well, that aha moment, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And all of the gifts we bring to Christ and the gifts of our gold, our time, ourselves, it begins to dawn on us. It isn't we who are bringing our gifts to Jesus. It is Jesus who brings his gift to us, the gift of himself. Merciful God, you have given us eyes to see, but so often we find ourselves blinded by our own sense of importance and our own desire to be participants in our own redemption. But it is you who has done all the work. And yet we are reminded of those magi, those kings from the east who come searching for Christ. May in our hearts and minds this day, as we look toward the new year, we resolve to look for you. To look for you in our moments of joy. To look for you in our moments of grief. To look for you in the faces and countenances of our friends. And to look for you in the faces and countenances of those whom we perceive as our enemies. May we look for you in every moment of every day. And may we, by the power and guidance of your Holy Spirit, recognize that it is not we who searched after you, but it is you who searched after us. It is not we that found you, it was you who found us. It was not we who lifted ourselves out of the mud and mire of life, but it is you who reached down from the cross and lifted us up and put us on solid ground. May we see, O oh God, that you have found us and you have given us the gift of yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.